Um, we're in uh, chapter 7, and I think that we could characterize uh, the situation as a kind of Jewish Christianity. There may not be a split yet, a clear split between Christians and Jews. And uh, there is, maybe if the letter of Hebrews is written uh, to uh, Jews in Israel, in Jerusalem, they may be, the temple is there if it's written before 70. And the sacrifices are already, you know, they're, rather they're still up and running. But it could be, I'm just speculating, here in chapter 7 that I'm about to read, they're going to talk about Christ as the high priest, as a priest. Uh, which is the only place in scripture that Christ is referred to as a priest in the book of Hebrews. Um, and it may be that this is a conclusion that Jewish Christians have already reached and saying, well, Christ is the, the true priest. Um, clearly the idea that uh, Christ is the fulfillment of the, the temple, of the sacrifices, um, is uh, the, the, what the argument of Hebrews is, but it may be in the situation in which there is not a clear break you know, if we between Judaism and Christianity, if we go back to Acts, we see Paul visiting the synagogues and uh, even offering a sacrifice in the temple. So it may be a, that Hebrews is written at a time when it is not yet possible even to speak of two faiths or two religions, Christianity and Judaism. Uh, the text argues that the former covenant and practices were valid for their time but they're valid only as pointers to what has come and now that the time and he's going to use the phrase the time of reformation in 930 since they only relate to food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation and so the writer is thinking of this reformation is occurring now it has come and there must give way uh, to what they pointed toward, toward what the, the religion pointed toward. And so the exhortation is not, oh, you must follow another religion, but the exhortation is to be a true Jew, you have to follow Jesus, not as a replacement, but in fulfillment. So with that background, let me read just a section. And we're gonna, I'm going to reference throughout uh, chapter 7, but... To get the argument, we would almost have to read the whole chapter. But let me just read a conclusion of the argument. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, from verse 15, who has become such not on the basis of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former covenant because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the argument is that Christ's priesthood, first of all, that it predates and is superior to the priesthood of the Levitical you know, tribe and to the temple and even to the history of the Jews. 
And of course, the problem here is this person, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a typological, you know, what he's using is using him as an explanation. Not that I don't, you know, the church uh, up until the time of Aquinas uh, and even beyond is just taking this, there's just broad agreement that uh, whoever this is, perhaps he's Noah's son, perhaps he's Shem, his significance is as a type of Christ. Christ is the true figure and Melchizedek is illustrative. He's a shadow of that greater reality. And so Melchizedek appears early in the biblical narrative and it's partly because of his obscurity without genealogy, without father, without mother. You know, it's not that this man literally doesn't have a father and mother. It's that typologically, that is, in as far as the history is concerned, there is no record. And that's the point within the Levitical priesthood. You literally had to have a written record of who your father, who your mother, and when the, you know, the last priest died. So he's saying, well, typologically, figuratively, Melchizedek is like Christ, uh, that without father, without mother. But of course, the part of this argument is that Melchizedek precedes the Levitical priesthood, and so to uh, uh, so to Christ is prior to the temple and the priesthood. So this occurs in Genesis uh, fourteen. The Abraham routs King. Uh, Chertolomer and others who conquered the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He took away their provisions. He kidnapped uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so Abraham goes out and fights these kings. And the king of Sodom, uh, uh, or king of Salem, uh, comes out to greet him when he's coming back. And, uh, well, actually, the... the uh, uh, the, the picture is many think that Salem is Jerusalem. We don't know that. Uh, the pre, and he's called the priest of God who come most high. He comes and blesses him, bringing out bread and wine. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemy into your hand. And then Abram gives one-tenth of his bounty to Melchizedek. That's it. I just told you everything we know, okay, about Melchizedek. The important thing here is not the historical person of Melchizedek, but the literary function of Melchizedek. Um, That the writer of Hebrews is going to build on a psalm And this is Psalm 110. It's the other place that Melchizedek is referenced, that he is, you know, that he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek is promised of the coming Messiah. Uh, So what we do not know is as important as what we know. We don't know his lineage. We don't know when he died. In terms of the record, he is a priest like Christ in that he is not a descendant of the, you know, the Levitical priest. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. 
And the other thing is that Abraham pays him a tithe. And the, arg- the argument in chapter 7 is, yes, and in paying him a tithe, it's, it's as if all of the descendants of Abraham, including the you know, Levitical priesthood, pays tithe to Melchizedek. So all that Abraham is pays tithe to Melchizedek, who is representative of Jesus. The importance of Hebrews in Scripture, I, I think one of the key things is that this is the only place that Jesus is, we have a description of him as priest. Uh, the confession that God's Son is our priest is only uh, available to us in and through the argument that is here, it's throughout Hebrews. I mean, certainly there are other places that we encounter the priesthood. We talk about, you know, John chapter 17 as the high priestly prayer. We see God or Christ interceding on our behalf. Uh, But the idea that the writer is saying Melchizedek is the first priest preceding all other priests and Jesus is the final priest. uh, And in a sense, then all that Jesus is encompasses and is above and beyond. You know, he precedes, he comes before and he comes after the Levitical priests, um, and so we've had. We, let me remind you of the places. You know, he said that he's a suffering high priest. He's and he refers to him in two seventeen. He had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. It says he was tempted. He suffered, and that's the reason he's able to aid us who are tempted. In uh, Chapter 3, it says that he is the apostle. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then he compares him to Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant for a testimony of these things, but Christ was faithful as a son. And then he says, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope until the time. So he's a high priest in a temple of which we, we are that temple. We, are, we constitute that temple. Uh, so our calling, which we partake of in and through Christ, is really the fulfillment of a priesthood. Uh, God is creator of the cosmos, which is ultimately the temple, I think, that is being talked about, that God resides in. And specifically in this verse, we are the temple or we are the priests. We are act as the medium of bringing God's presence into the lives of others and even into the cosmos itself. The other thing is that it talks about Jesus as being sinless, this high priest in in comparison to the Levitical priesthood. He is he has passed through the heavens. He is tempted in all things, yet without sin. Uh, both concepts are key. Uh, that is, that his, his having passed through the heaven, it's post-resurrection. Uh, he is not subject to death. Uh, he has entered into the presence of God. There's a, uh, the idea is that he mediates continually he, on the basis of his enduring life. In chapter 5, it says he's designated by God as a high priest according uh, to the order of Melchizedek. And then he interrupted himself and he says, well, you should know this. 
But I'm about to say some hard things. And he says, but you guys should be teachers, and you're not yet teachers. And the idea here is his priesthood relates directly to the hard role and activity, I think, which we all should be engaged in. He only says we, or you, we the readers. Uh, As priests, we ought to be teachers. We ought to be able to discern good and evil. We ought to be able to endure suffering with joy and gladness. So there's two things that come together here. First of all, his perfection, and we've talked about that. His perfection is on the basis of his resurrection, uh, that he's been made perfect. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. It says this in chapter 7, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the Levitical priesthood does not perfect. If it did, it would not, the writer says, need to be repeated again and again. But the priesthood of Christ is then on the basis of his death, his resurrection, and now his indestructible life. I'm saying something here a little different than we're used to hearing. That is, how is Jesus save us? Is it simply on the basis of his death? No, what the argument of the writer of Hebrews is that he's a priest and he is enabled to be a priest on the basis of his resurrection and ascension. Jesus is able to continue to intercede. And this is his perfection. And it's directly connected then to his indestructible life. So the death he died was followed by his resurrection. And so the reference, you know, in verse 16 Uh, to the resurrection he suffered death he was exposed to destruction but the grave could not hold him and so in Hebrews and in you know there's uh, continued reference to the cross but I think always behind the cross is the idea of the resurrection he described when he describes Jesus as possessing in in chapter 7 an indestructible life he does not mean that Jesus never died. You know, this talk we talked about in chapter 5 when Jesus said, you know, Lord, deliver me. Did God answer his prayer? Well, yes, he answered his prayer through resurrection. Uh, he means that he died a death that was unable to hold him. It was a death that was followed by resurrection. I think we can say Jesus' resurrection saves us. Jesus' ascension saves us. Jesus' life saves us. And certainly Jesus' death saves us. But we don't want to segment it out. We don't want to focus simply on one aspect of it. So to proclaim that Jesus is high priest on the basis of an indestructible life is to capture the entire movement of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. He's a high priest, the writer is arguing, on the basis of his resurrected indestructible life. Uh, and this then gets to the quotation from Psalms 110.4. You are a priest forever, like Melchizedek, just like Melchizedek. And again, don't focus on Melchizedek in this character. Uh, in terms of the record, Melchizedek, there is no record of his death. We, he's very obscure. But the writer is simply making a typological point. In chapter 3, he's going to say, Every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. 
It's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What does Jesus offer? Christ offers himself, right? Not simply one part of himself, not simply his death, not simply some aspect of him, but he offers himself and he does so today. You know, this is the writer that every day is today. Uh, The idea is it can be repeated without being other than what it once was. It takes place continually in the heavenly realm, but it can be continually present in history because Christ's humanity makes such an offering possible. He is resurrected, bodily resurrected, ascended, and thus high priest. So who, he was declared the son of God with power, greater than the angels. Well, he was already greater than the angels in some sense, but the writer is making the argument, yes, he's greater than, uh, than the angels in the sense that they are simply spiritual beings, but he is embodied. He is corporeal. He is, you know, he's taken all that is created and brought it before God. Uh, he is our ascended you know, raised high priest, and we receive grace and apostleship about the obedience of, you know, uh, to bring obedience of faith among the Gentiles. This is Paul, he says, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. Uh, And he goes on to talk about on the basis of the resurrection. So at Easter, you know, we could say, Jesus was appointed to be our high priest. This was when his work was completed. It's when he is alive. He's always in his priestly service on behalf of his people. Um, So our priesthood, once we've said this about Christ, then, then we have to ask, well, what about our own priesthood? Well, it's on the basis of a resurrected life. You know, we're baptized, we die, we're raised again. This is the picture that the writer is going to quote extensively from Jeremiah 31 that we live on the basis of a changed heart. That we live on the basis of a resurrected life. So Jesus, since Jesus exercises an eternal and final priesthood he is able to mediate an eternal and final salvation to us which we in turn mediate to others under the Levitical system there were many priests because they were subject to death and replacement but under the new arrangement there's one priest one mediator and the declaration that he continues forever it indicates it's permanent death disrupted and of course we've talked about that death is the uncleanness that is cleansed you know in the temple Christ cleanses us of sin and death through his own death, his own destruction of death, uh, that death is no longer the controlling factor, the writer says in chapter 2, in our lives. We're no longer subject to the slavery of the fear of death. Uh, There is no limitation then to his priesthood. It's on the basis of eternal power is, is the picture. He's able to save absolutely those who approach him. He is able to approach the Father on our behalf and then we too can enter in. So the way that uh, 
uh, William Lane has put this. He says, The old arrangement suffered from a shortness of spiritual breath, and it has been replaced with a new and final priesthood which is endowed with a quality of life unaffected by death, cleansed of death, free of the orientation to death. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So how do we see the true power of the priest who offers a better hope? Uh, the, you know, the, who does, he, 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 even though maybe sometimes he doesn't seem to rule, that he's not put all enemies under his feet. But his rule is very interesting in chapter 7. It's on the basis of peace and righteousness rather than power. He's a very different kind of king you know, than we were talking about this morning. He's not a king who exercises his might on the basis of uh, a military or nuclear power. He is a priest, a king of righteousness, of peace. And the city over which he reigns is ident- identified as a place of peace. Uh, he alludes repeatedly then to Christ's high priesthood. But he, there's three claims I think we conclude with that are significant. First, Christ is perfect. He's holy. You know, what is this perfection? He's holy. He's blameless. He's undefiled. He's separated from sinners. He's defeated death. You know, what is his perfection? He's overcome death. Second, he's in contrast with the other priests who in fact are subject to death, who are replaced, you know, uh, by a, a subsequent priesthood and have to offer sacrifices for themselves. And third, uh, is the kind of sacrifice the priests offer. Uh, the Levitical priesthood is, uh, it's, you know, its sacrifices are share, in, it, the writer says, they share in the weakness for which they seek to be a remedy. Uh, They have to be repeated. They are not permanent. They do not take away sin. They do not affect the human heart. Christ's priesthood and sacrifice come from, and this is the argument here in chapter 7, the word of the oath. And that's the oath in 110. Here's the fulfillment of, you know, Psalms 110. And then on that basis, we can talk about a priesthood of believers, and that's what the writer is going to go on and argue Uh, that we can approach God, uh, that we can enter into the Holy of Holies, that we, you know, what was the the Levitical priest? They had to have a sprinkling of blood, but the the writer in 1021 says, your hearts have been sprinkled and they've been cleansed from a bad conscience and your bodies with pure water. So he's saying Christ is the high priest and then we are in the order of the priesthood of Christ. And so we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. And this is what, you know, chapter 10, uh, that the veil has been lifted, that he's gone beyond the veil. His flesh is, uh, through in his flesh, he says, since that we have a great high priest over the house of God. Chapter 13, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have a sustenance. We have a food uh, that sustains us that they did not have. Now, there's a, before you get 
you know, we recognize, he says, but let us go outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. I think he's saying to those people, look, here's this beautiful city, here's this beautiful temple, but it, this is not going to last. In fact, it's not going to last very long, uh, you know, if we're around 50 A.D. Uh, it's going to be destroyed very shortly. But even if we're wrong about, you know, even if it's later, he's saying that about every city. He's saying that about every human habitation. Don't attach yourself to the cities of men. Don't attach yourselves to the economies, the politics, the nation states, the kings of, you know, the sacrifices of this world. You are of another city, another people, another sacrifice. And so he's gesturing, I think, toward the temple, to, toward the Jerusalem. And he's saying, this is not a first order reality. I think he's taking all human religion, every human city into account. We're not to be caught up in the economies of this world. There is an alternative means of sustenance. Let us go out to him, outside the camp, outside the city. And let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.